Assalamu alaikum. Um, welcome to another episode of Dean Talk. Um, today we are joined um, by a dear colleague and friend, Mona Ibrahim Saab, um, and also our co host, Jan's here as well. Today's topic is about uh, today is we actually kicking off a new series where we'll be discussing um, working life with Muslim professionals um, and you know the achievements and their backgrounds into the into the into those kind of specific fields. Um, and today our first guest to um, to kick the series off is Mona Ibrahim, who is a mental health chaplain working for the NHS. Um, we had a topic one of our early um first topic i think wasn't it the first yeah, topic yeah it was actually based on mental health which was 20 weeks no more than 20 weeks ago um so it's kind of interesting to refer back to the the discussion we've had then um and also from your experience as well um so just to kick it off then monona if you want to give us a little bit of information about um where you've studied uh what you're up to etc Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. First of all, Jazakallah for having me, uh, Malana. Um, lovely to be here in your house and um, being able to speak to people about what chaplaincy is and Muslim chaplaincy in the mental health care sector. So my name is Ibrahim Mia. Um, I, I, st- I graduated, uh, let's start off with uh, giving my age away a bit. I graduated <laughs> in 2002. Um, from Madinatul Ulum, Kidney Minister. So uh, my um, study life is started off in Darulum, Coventry Road. I was there for just over a year, um, after which my parents realised I'm not studying. So uh, <laughs> they moved me um, to Madinatul Ulum. Um, I did hips for a bit, but I couldn't finish that off. Um, I, I was learning and then I kept forgetting everything that I've learned. And then I moved to the, um, um, the Alim class. Um, and I completed in 2002. And in between that, I went to, for my Mishkat year, I went to the Alum Berry. Um, then we came back to Medin Tudum and we finished off. So that's my uh, Islamic studies. After that, I trained to become a driving instructor. So, um, yeah, yeah, I, I, <laughs> I was driving instructor for a very long time. I still have my badges. Um, so I am still a ADI approved driving instructor. <laughs> and um, while I was a driving instructor in 2008, I suppose it's almost I accidentally fell into chaplaincy. <laughs> um, there was a few things. Behind it, I suppose, um, one of the things was obviously um, trying to put my studies into use. Everything that I've done in Madrasa, um, yeah. all the years and all the time that I spent in studying, putting that into use. So I was teaching in Maktab. Plus, I wanted to give something back to the community as well. So um, I started looking at different things, different sort of roles. Um, and chaplaincy came my way. Um so in 2008, I applied for a post um, where I am, well, where I am full time now. So in 2008, I applied for a one day post in Middlesbrough. It was um, Tees Esk and Weir Valley NHS Foundation Trust. So, um, yeah, I started there with one day a week. Um, and it was kind of almost accidental. And I think if, if you remember, 2007 there was a lot of snow in Sunderland was that, um... and well um, as a driving instructor you need to be on the roads to work and yeah, you, yeah, yeah. obviously you need to pay your bills um, and that kind of pushed me to look at another part-time post where I wouldn't be relying on the weather yeah, to yeah. be good so that was another thing that kind of made me look for another sort of job um, so in 2007 there was a lot of snow and I was off the road for about two months so I couldn't teach, oh. I couldn't work for two months. So um, that's what made me start looking for a, another type of post. Um, so in 2008, I started working part-time, one day a week. And I vaguely remember I went for a meeting, um, and it was a Northeast meeting. It was called the Simni. I don't know if you remember. They used to have a group in, in the Northeast, Simni, which was Spirituality in Mental Health Northeast. 
Oh no. So it was a lot of hospital chaplains. Um, there was um, vicars. There was priests. Um, people who work in religious settings. Um, they were there, and I it was the first time I went, and I think it was probably the first time a Muslim chaplain attended that meeting, <laughs> and um, it felt. Like I was being dragged in all, you know, all different directions. So, you know, um, CNTW, well, at that time they were called NTW, which is Northumberland Tyne and Weir, which is another mental health care trust. They were saying, oh, if you work for them, can you come and work for us as well a bit? Um, then there was the Northumbrian Healthcare, which is not mental health, that's acute trust. They needed Muslim chaplaincy support. So they asked as well, oh, can you come and do some time with us as well. So the organization I was working with, they were really happy <laughs> because they knew they would start making some money on me as well because what they do is they sell my time to them, uh, okay. but they charge them more. <laughs> so um, it's called a service level agreement, SLA. Yeah, yes, so th they do a SLA and they charge them obviously for my training that TZS Can We A Valley give me. They charge them all for all that. So obviously they, um, sold my time to them kind of thing okay. so yeah that's how it kind of all started off and then i started working part-time for tzesk and weir valley they're called chuv everyone knows them as chuv in the northeast cntw part-time northumbrian healthcare part-time i used to work for <laughs> the prison service part-time i was gonna ask you so obviously you started off chaplaincy for mental health how do you end up doing chaplaincy for prison service is that under mental health or no it's it's not under mental health i think what it is um looking back in 2005 2006 in the northeast there were very less scholars ulama yeah, who yeah. could uh, speak english who who were born and bred in the uk yeah so because of that there was um there weren't anyone around to you know provide the service right, okay. so as soon as the prison service the nhs found people they were, it was like gold dust actually you know so everyone's like after you you okay. know so and you know now when you apply for a post it's you know there's a lot of people who are applying for the same post yeah yeah a lot of competition, competition there competition now yeah but now at that time there wasn't. wasn't. There wasn't, okay. You know, so they, you applied for a post. It, it wasn't easy. I'm not saying that it was like you, you, you get in straight away. Obviously, there's, it's always like a, a points-based system yeah. that they do. So, yeah, you had to do the interview, you know, before you get the job. But the prison service kind of came because there was no one there. The prison service were calling out to people that we need imams to come and lead Jummah. Um, is there anyone there? And my brother, he used to work for the prison service. Um, when I was yeah. So uh, he's like, oh, come and do some work for the prison <laughs> service. Uh, so, yeah. So I think because I took on all these roles in the NHS and the prison service, my driving school got smaller and smaller. <laughs> but alhamdulillah, you know, because I was the only, you know, Bengali speaking, Urdu speaking, bit of Arabic speaking driving instructor in the Northeast at that time. I got the bulk of the business, you know, from you a, yeah, yeah. a business point of view, alhamdulillah, I did really well. But I think it's, it's that thing you got to weigh out, isn't it? You know, what do I enjoy more and what is more fulfilling? Yeah. You know, is it working for my community, giving back to the community? Or is it, I suppose, even teaching people how to drive? Majority of my learners were, you know, non-English non, non, yeah. non speaking. Non, yeah non-English speaking, so they were finding it really difficult um, passing the driving test. So um, I was kind of helping them as well. So yeah, yeah. for me, my intention was to help the community, you know. Of course, yeah. Yeah, I mean, in terms of um, you graduating, you were like the first group of ulama to graduate. Um, so Yeah, so uh, me and Molana Shahin, I think, were the first. Um, and Molana Asad, I think, was there. Yes, Molana Asad. Yeah, he yeah, yeah. he was the same year as well, wasn't he? He was, yeah. So you guys were like the first, the first graduates in Sunderland. <laughs> the first graduates in Sunderland, but you were also the first Asian driving instructor. I'd say not just in Sunderland, but probably the yeah, um, in the northeast, I think. I mean, yeah, because I can't remember anyone. Any yeah, other Asian yeah. Driving I remember um, after I became a driving instructor. Um, then there were people in Newcastle, 
I think not very long after me, you know, um, they qualified as a driving instructor as well. So yeah, it was kind of a leading the path kind of thing, it you was, know, yeah. <laughs> setting the way. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, sorry, man. I'll just uh, just to jump in there. Obviously, for you just mentioned chaplaincy in very you know various different settings. Yeah. For someone who doesn't know what chaplaincy is, I mean, we hear it, but a lot of people won't have interactions with them or you know never really come across them. What, what is your duties and responsibilities? Um, is it with the NHS, is it just the patients? Is it the people in the trust itself? Uh, if you could just speak a, a little bit about that. Okay, so chaplaincy within the NHS and I suppose um, different organisations, um, the prison service, you know, you get chaplaincy within university, you know, um, secular settings. You know, so the the main understanding behind the chaplaincy is to provide a religious, spiritual, and pastoral care. Mm. Now, it depends on the remit that you have. So, um, for us within the NHS, we our remit is our patients first of all. Secondly, is our staff, and thirdly, the carers. So, the patients' family members. So, our job is to make sure that their religious, spiritual, and pastoral needs are being met. So. Chaplaincy is like a, a specialist service. It's not just like a normal service because you could understand that most people can't be a chaplain. Because well, you can, but you need to go to like you know, for us as a Muslim chaplain, you need to go to Madras and have a good understanding, or you need to do another course which gives you a grounding within your own faith. If you're wishy-washy in your own religion, you can't be a, a can't guide chaplain. Other people. Yeah, how, how are you gonna guide others when you need guidance yourself? <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean. So it's a specialist service. They consider it as a specialist service that most people can't do. So only the chaplains can provide that religious, spiritual and pastoral support. You know, so um, I suppose that reflects in your um, pay packet as well, um, in the sense that in, a, um, in, in the NHS, as a fully qualified chaplain, you're a band six, which is... I suppose similar to a pharmacist or you know yeah. band six is pretty high up within the NHS okay. banding um, because I suppose um, you can understand it in such a way the NHS want to give holistic care you know that mentality of that you go to hospital you have your tablets and you come back home they they started to move away from that especially within the mental health care setting they've moved away from that they want to give you a holistic care and what do they mean by holistic care Holistic care means looking after your physical, your body, your mind, and also your soul. Yeah, so it's so, not just about giving you medicine, it's about giving you a humane yes. treatment, so yeah. treating you like a human. Right? Treating you like a human and treating every part of you. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so um, your religious faith is one of the nine um, characteristics which are protected by law. Okay. So faith is... One of them as well, your race, your faith, your gender, etc., etc. So because your faith is protected by law, it's your human right to be able to um, um, practice your own faith while you're in a hospital. And the NHS must provide a service or a, a way for you to be able to practice your own faith. Okay, so if, so if you, um, how would a patient find you or do you find the patients? So, um, well, our... Within um, our organization, every organization is a bit different. So how would they find us? We've got posters around um, within the wards, within um, the clinics, etc. And not only that, you know, when they a patient comes, when they have their their meeting, the initial meeting. So just to clarify, you only deal with mental health patients, not like anyone outside of mental health? No. So okay. my speciality is just mental health. Just mental. So I'm the deputy head of chaplaincy within mental health. Okay. Okay. So I look after half of my team. Um, so we only work with mental health patients. But saying that mental health and acute health, you know, they can overlap each other. You know. So um, uh, going back to how do they find us? There, you know, the first meeting it could be the the crisis team sees them in the beginning or it could be the doctor who comes to see them but they'll have a you know a lot of people around them you know to give them care 
So all different departments, psychology, psychiatry, all these different departments will be at that meeting to plan their care. Right, okay. So when they plan their care, our name, it comes up as well that we are part of the service that are there to give them the care. So we give them their, if they are religious, then we look after their religious side of them. It doesn't matter what faith they are. So our service is for people of all faiths. Um, oh, right, okay. okay, so even though you're a Muslim chaplain, you yeah. work with everyone. Yeah, so okay. my job role isn't a Muslim chaplain. Oh, right, okay. I'm a chaplain who happens to be a Muslim. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but I see everybody. Okay. But if that patient who I see wants to see a Muslim, then I'm, no, I'm the preferred option. Yeah, first um, point of call. Okay. But if they don't want to see a Muslim, if they want to see a Christian or a Buddhist or a Hindu or or a Jew, whoever they want to see, we will facilitate that. We have, you know, within our team, we've got Christians, we've got Hindus, etc. But also we've got a team outside that we can call on that they will come and they will see the patient. And oh, right, okay. those people who come and see our patients, they need to be slightly trained up as well in right. mental health because we don't want someone who comes in, for example, from a Muslim point of view, a person's got mental health issues and you call the local imam in and he says, oh, he's got a gin inside him, let's take <laughs> gin out. You know, so we don't want that. Yeah, yeah of course. You know, um, so looking at that, that's how we have a, have a team there that will come in and look after the person. Okay, um, just out of interest, do we have female chaplains as well? Is it just all male? Yeah, well, um, we can, theoretically, we can have female chaplains. There are female chaplains. Um, not in the Northeast. Further afield, we have female as chaplains. Females as in agents, uh, sorry, Muslims. Or yeah, Muslims. Okay. You know, um, down in Birmingham, I know a few people who, you know, um, mental health chaplains as well who are females. Okay. Um, Sheffield, you know, even Leeds Primary Care Trust, they have um, female chaplains. So, yeah, so as a chaplaincy and spiritual care service, we provide pastoral care. We give them space for conversation. You know, um, as a team, we provide space for meditation, mindfulness, um, spirituality, creativity. There's a lot of things that they can do. And I think a lot of, you know, a lot of the time people don't understand what a chaplain does. They just think, oh, this guy must be just walking around, <laughs> yeah. isn't it? You know, and part of my role it's is to walk around, <laughs> you know. Um, and we we call it in our trust, we call it loitering with intent. <laughs> so we are walking around and we walk slowly. One of the things that a chaplain must do is walk slowly because... You know, um, in a hospital environment, it's so busy, yeah. you know, especially mental health. If there's been a, you know, um, a crisis somewhere, everyone's running around everywhere. And this, the patients or the staff or our carers, they're going to be, when they see people rushing around with, you know, letters and pieces of paper in their hand, they're scared to approach them. Okay. Because they think, oh, they're too busy and mm-hmm. I don't want to, you know, stop them from doing their job. So as a chaplain, our job is to walk slowly. So you walk on the wards and you don't rush. Mm-hmm. If you think you're going to rush on the wards, don't go into the ward at all. You know. Oh, right, okay. So you walk slowly so that people see that you're you've got time. You've got time to talk. Understand? So, so we do get patients coming to you with early stages of mental health, or is it severe cases, or is it a spectrum of? So it's a, um, a spectrum from all different. Um, all different stages really um what we would prefer is that a patient a person who is having mental health issues or having any issues which is you know psychotic whatever it is they come to us they come to our service they they come and seek help in the early stages because you know the earlier you have intervention the better chance of recovery okay what is the um psychotic is, um, so is that when you're when you psychotic is you either hear things or you see see things things. you know um because a lot of the time especially within our community within the muslim community it's changing alhamdulillah but it's straight away people think oh jinns you know yeah yeah. that is one of my questions Um, and because of that i think because of the stigma behind it people don't seek help and because they delay it so much the person's you know mind gets worse yeah then it's harder for them to get recovery and recovery isn't about curing 
recovery is getting to a stage where you can lead a meaningful life. It's, 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 so you're essentially you're um, accepting it yeah. and, and living with it yeah. rather than focusing on trying to Accepting it, it, living with it, trying to make it less or learning, you know, we call it a toolkit in, in, in the service that learning mechanisms of learning, learning a way to deal with it, you know, and for different people, it's different things. For some people, you know, exercise, you know, when they are really unwell, if they run, running, they say is really good for your mental health. Why? Because your mind is occupied in different things, you know, so yeah, you know, once if you want to get into it, it's going to take us all night if we start talking about it. But we want people to come to us in the early stages as soon as they realize there's something wrong. You know, even yeah. if they think it's a gin, get help straight away. Okay, so let me ask you this question because that's one of my questions. So, have you dealt with a gin case and how do you know if it's a gin case or an actual mental health issue? Mm, that's a very good question because. <laughs> I'll tell you why it's a um, very good question. Because the, um, the signs of mental health problems and the signs of gin possession is very, very similar. Okay, so... So in terms of the mental health condition, yeah. which condition would you say is the similar one? Psychosis, Psychosis is basically when you hear things, when you see things. Yeah, yeah. Um, so... There are people who, you know, within um, psychiatry, they would say that there is no such thing as jinns. But as Muslims, our belief is that there are jinns. Now, do they affect human beings or not? That's a different, you know, argument. Okay. Okay. Now, do jinns possess people or do they only give, you know, they affect people? That's a different different argument as well. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So there's all these things to consider. But... I've I've heard of people and I've met people and people, uh, you know, come into our service at later stages when it's very late on and their psychosis has gone to such a stage that there's very less chance of recovery. Right, I think that's okay. probably the best way to put it. But, but is if that they, because of jinns or That's something? because the Raqi or the person that they went to see first said, oh, don't go to the hospital. Um, you know, um, don't go and you know, they're, all they're going to do is give you a tablet. Now, first of all, if a tablet, taking a tablet takes that gin away, isn't that worth it? <laughs> you know, <laughs> so I don't know why that person is saying don't go and take that tablet. Now, yeah, these um, antipsychotic medication do have side effects. You know, I'm yeah. not saying that, that, you know, they don't. They do have side effects. But if you're not well... And, you know, think of it like this. Your brain is another muscle within your body. You know, you know, I've seen you going to the gym and that, yeah. <laughs> I know you'll need to go quite a lot more. But um, when you go to the gym, and, or if you use a muscle quite a lot, more than what you should, you hurt that muscle. Yeah. And you need to take, find a means or a way to get recovery and take rest and fix that muscle. So if we see it physically, when you see a, you know, bemari, um, a, uh, a illness, then we can deal, with, we know it's there and we can see it straight away. Yeah, but yeah. In your, when it happens in your brain and when it's just about, you know, uh, chemicals, chemical imbalance Imbalanced. within your brain, which you can't see, then what is it? Now, a lot of people, a lot of people from our community will put it down to gins because you know, coming from a, you know, Bangladeshi background or, you know, South Asian, African background. Because where we come from, we don't have the um, speciality, I suppose, of mental health there. Even, even the awareness. Yeah, the awareness not there. But mm. you need to put it into a context where you understand what's going on. So if your loved one is mentally unwell, they are seeing things, they are hearing things, they're acting weird. So you need to understand what's going on. So the best way and the easiest way to understand it is to say supernatural. There's a gin there. Yeah, yeah. That's why. Now, I'm not saying that there's no gins there. There could be. But to be fair, no one knows when it's a gin and when it's not. And there are, you know, we say, you know, as 
as imams and as you know um, specialists in mental health we say yeah there are slight variations and you can detect like you know if it's psychosis you see that you know uh, when they talk it's not rational you know it's uh, we don't understand what they're trying to say they've you know they're one minute they're saying one thing another minute they're saying something, you know, something completely different their, th their thoughts are you know not in order okay yeah incoherent you can't understand exactly what they're trying to say but if it's if we say if they are you know um if there's a um if they've been affected by jinns then their speech is rational we might not we might not like what they're saying <laughs> yeah but they make sense well because of the jinn because if it is a jinn yeah, yeah. and the jinn you know he's, spe he's speaking out then it's rational speech that he'll say oh. understand um the tone of voice of that person if it's a jinn will change yeah yeah, yeah because we believe that so it's have not that you, person have you come across cases yourself so personally? i've been working in mental health for 15 years you must yeah. have some knocking so stories. um you do get you know a, a lot of people who i'll be honest with that sometimes you do fear you know what <laughs> what's going to be <laughs> what's going to happen next what's going to happen with this patient you know i went to i went in to see a patient and um she was like oh you know that gin next to you is really strong i'm scared of it and i'm thinking okay i'm start <laughs> reading my pulse quickly you know um close the bill for luck you know started it but she kept on saying it and she kept on saying things that she shouldn't have known oh and sand so you yeah i can say it's mental health and the doctors they can try and you know answer it for you for me it's unknown so there is some sort of effect there i went to see a um a patient um a few months ago a few months ago on, on the ward um he's a saudi national um he's a student in durham okay i shouldn't give too much away because we need to keep it confidential <laughs> um, so um he's never had any islamic education before right okay okay um when i spoke to him very nice guy he made sense everything he says he knows he's not very well but he believes there's a jinn with him so i said to him why do you think there's a jinn with him he goes imam i am um, i know the you know so he said that off by heart i've never opened a book in my life wow yeah so i go so just to what do you mean so he said that yeah the six um famous um books of hadith you know Bukhari Muslim and they're not uh, just small volumes they're not yeah. small volumes <laughs> yeah so um i had one of the books in the office and my office is across the you know the corridor from his so i said okay yeah let me go and get bukhari and then we'll check you know and he hadith after hadith after hadith he was yeah. just reading through the book wow you know and he's uh you know he's he trained to be a scientist and allah knows best you know so there are certain things that you see that can't be explained so going back to what you mentioned earlier on like so you said some people uh, professionals um they kind of take the supernatural on the chin whereas i'm assuming there must there must be some others that do accept or believe it um so if if for example the, the case there where you've got someone that's clearly you know generic how do you then relate that to the professionals and how do you make them accept it or do you not so what i say to the patient my um my conversation with um with the patient would be that look you're in hospital you know a lot of the time they're in hospital if they're you know even if they're in the community then i say to them look um let's fight it from both sides you know let's do it from the medical side yeah and also let's do it from the spiritual side let's do the ruqya let's do everything that is needed for the ruqya let's you know read your salah stay clean you know um in the morning and you know at night time in the evening make sure you read your quls you read your ayatul kursi etc etc but also you're in hospital you're going to have to take medication yeah and let's take the, start the medication because mental health you know um antipsychotic medication doesn't work straight away it takes a while for the body to accept it all right so let's give it a bit of time and let's see if it starts working and 
99% of the time it works. You know, yeah, um, it can, as I say, mental health, most of the time, it's mental illness. Every, you know, apart from one or two, a few people, majority cases. I've always found that it's mental health problems, even though they come in. And if they are from the Muslim background, majority of the time they think it's a jinn. So, so how do you convince someone that they are actually suffering mentally from mental health rather than something else? Because I think as not just as Muslims, but as Asians, we have a stubborn mentality. Like, I'm not, yeah. men- I'm not mentally ill. Like, what are you on about? And I, I see that with our elders as well. You know, you can clearly see they're losing their memory or, you know, they're not right. They're not um, 100% there. But you take them down to get mentally checked up. Like, all the answers they will give is like, no, no, nothing wrong with me. You know, I'm fine. I can still drive and whatever. But so how would you actually convince someone that they are suffering? I find a lot of the time the patient who comes in, they they accept it easily. Yeah. It's their family who doesn't want to accept it. Oh. Uh, so when I, uh, the conversation I have with them, they agree with me. Okay, I say to them, look, this is, you know, the the symptoms you're having. Is there anything else? Is And they accept it okay. a lot of the time. And even if, if they don't accept it, then I go through the route of let's do it from both sides. We'll do the, you know, there's no... Um, there's um, no harm in doing ruqya. Yeah, yeah. You know, even if you're well, you should do ruqya. You know, we're told to yeah, yeah, yeah. read, you know, blow on ourselves in the morning and evening. Yeah, even yeah. when you're well, you know, um, especially when you're well, <laughs> you don't go, get unwell, <laughs> yeah. you know. Uh, so, you know, certain verses of the Quran that you should read to stay well, you know, in the Quran, Allah says, you know, shifa. So, in the Quran is, within the Quran, there's shifa for human beings. And it's, uh, you know, um, Rahmah from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So there's no problem in doing your ruqya. You know, it's not that because you do ruqya, then the jinn's going to come and affect you. Yeah. Okay. So do the um, spiritual side or the religious side, and, but also at the same time, do the medical side. You know, give it a try. There's no harm in trying. Give it a try and see what happens. And even if they don't want to accept it in extreme circumstances, then if they don't have capacity to make that decision they would be forced to take the medication so we try and intervene before they are being forced Forced, okay because once a person is forced to take medication straight away they'll they don't want to accept it anymore they think that you know obviously their human rights are being um, (laughs) violated yeah violated but actually even if they are forced to take the medication then they get well so if they take a tablet and they get well or if they take the injection the depot or whatever and they get well then that means medication is having an effect and it's probably not a gin, you know. Um, but yeah, that's part of our work. Um, going back to what chaplaincy is, there's a, I think there's a few uh, important things that we need to understand. A lot of people don't understand what um, spiritual care and what pastoral care is. They understand what religious care is, but what is spiritual care and for us and what is spiritual care for non-muslims yeah, yeah. you know um and what does you know um the nhs as a secular organization understand what spiritual care is so what is first of all you need to understand what is spirituality yeah, yeah good point uh can any of you tell me what spirituality is so for me it will be about um the inside like having a clear conscience and being a stronger person inside, yeah. you know, be, being positive, um, dealing with personal issues that could affect you and the way you behave, or you, the way you think. Yeah, that's correct. Anyone? I agree, no. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to put you on the spot, by the way. So you're right. In, the reason I say you're right is there is no specific definition of spirituality. Yeah. Different organizations, different departments will give you a different definition of spirituality okay. so you know the royal royal college of psychiatry they have a specific definition of spirituality royal college of nursing have a slightly different understanding of what spirituality is you know for us as muslims our understanding of spirituality is completely different to what the church will think of as spirituality but within the nhs there's a, i've got uh, a couple of things that, okay it is what what is the deepest within us 
Okay, so what makes you tick? What makes you human? Yeah. And to find out what makes you human is to work on your spirituality. Okay, spirituality is more of an individual practice. It's not a religious practice. So it's what is inside you. you. Yeah, yeah. Inside. What makes you? Uh, what helps you overcome um, difficulties? Okay. Um, what makes you feel stronger in yourself? So these things are. Um, there's a lot, lot of other definitions. You know, what makes you human? So when you're dealing with a patient, is this the kind of conversation you would be having to find out? What triggers them, what motivates them or makes them stronger? Yeah, so um, if it's a Muslim, I would work with them on both sides. Obviously, the um, our understanding of spirituality or tazkiyah as we know it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, um, verses from the Quran and the Hadith that, you know, we look at, you know, when um, Jibreel alayhi salam, when he came to the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa and he said, you know, mal ihsan, what is ihsan? And the Prophet ﷺ, he said, That you worship Allah as if you see him. And if you don't see him, then know that he sees you. And that's how we worship. And that when we have that firm understanding within us, that means we are spiritually strong. Yeah. You know, and trying to work with that patient on, on that. But from a... Um, within the hospitals, um, within the NHS, spirituality, understanding of spirituality is a bit different. So how do we find out what spirituality is and how, what sort of technique or model do we use to help a person work out their spiritual needs? So um, there's one, well, two models that we work with within our trust, within our organization. One is the chime, it's called the chime factors. Okay. So the chime factors are, it's, um, it's actually a universally recognized um, pathway. Pathway is just, uh, you know, protocols yeah, yeah. kind of means that. So they call it the chime factors. The chime, it's, um, it's a, actually it stands for, um, C stands for connectedness. Um, the H stands for hope. I stands for identity. The M stands for meaning in meaning and purpose, and the E is for um, empowerment. Okay, so these are the things that you would focus on. These are the things that we would focus on to help this person recover. Okay. So remember, in mental health, there's a, a difference in recovery than acute health. So in mental health, when we say recovery, we, it doesn't mean that they'll be completely cured. It means they'll be able, they'll be strong enough or they'll be, have the capability to live a meaningful and fulfilling life. I think this, this is something I found quite interesting from our conversation today is with mental health. Because um, I used to think if someone's suffering from mental health, they go to the doctor, then the doctor's going to cure them. But it's not really, no one's going to be able to cure, cure you. But the service that you're providing is teaching them how to cope with that mental health. Yes. So and then how to, you know, like you said, live a fulfilling life. Yeah. Because I guess mental health isn't something that's just going to go away like a headache would with a paracetamol. Yeah, yeah. So sometimes people get better, then they have relapses. Yeah. Then they get better again. Then that could happen for the rest of their lives. Yeah. Sometimes people get better and they're fine for the rest of their lives. Sometimes people never get better. So it's like a whole spectrum of, you know, different things. So we try and work with them to, you know, with the chime factors, what makes, you know, what gives them a sense of belonging, connectedness. Is it the masjid? Is it um, the zikr groups, zikr majlises yeah, yeah. for Muslims, you know, um, for non, you know, this um, works for both Muslims and non, well, non-Muslims. Well, I suppose non-Muslims, zikr <laughs> next to them. And I'll be honest with you, I've got a patient, he's a long-term patient. And every Friday after Jumma, he's not allowed to go to Jumma because he, he's in our um, um, specialist services. He's not allowed to get out of there. Okay. But I go in and we do zikr. Yeah, every okay, Friday. Non-Muslim. No, no, he's a Muslim. Oh, okay. But the rest of the patients on the ward oh. who aren't Muslim, <laughs> they come and sit with zikr majlis as well. Oh, mashallah. You know, so, and they feel, you know, afterwards I ask them, so how did it make you feel? And with that patient, he always says to me, 
means like he doesn't feel he doesn't find peace and the only time he finds peace is after the zikr majlis oh. he wants zikr majlis every day but <laughs> i don't have enough time, time you know i don't have um, enough days of the week to go and see him yeah, yeah. and with the uh, the rest of the patients i asked them so how does it make you feel even they said oh we feel at peace we feel like you know calm it's power of allah's name isn't it yeah, yeah. and you know I, sometimes I sit with patients who even aren't Muslims, you know, read parts of the Quran with them. And something that I find, which is, you know, you know, um, it's amazing. By them just listening to the Quran, they calm down, yeah. you know, and it gives them, I suppose it gives them something to focus on, you know. Um, and mental health is something that you can't, you know, I find that there's always something behind it to find why a person is suffering from mental health issues. Majority of the time, there's always some sort of trauma within their life that's happened. Something that triggers it. Yeah, something that's happened within their life that has hurt their brain. Oh. And your brain, you know, subhanAllah, Allah has created your brain in such a way, you know, it's, it's amazing. Yes. It tries and fixes it, you know, itself. It covers things up. Okay. Like and, coping mechanisms. Yeah, coping mechanisms and it will forget it. You will actually, you know, that thing that happened to you, that trauma that happened might have been in childhood. You can't even remember it. But it's trying to find out what that trauma was. Oh, right, okay. And a lot of the time people don't want to speak about that trauma. Yeah. And as a Muslim chaplain, it's about giving that that patient a safe space so that they can speak to you about what it was yeah so as a chaplain when we go in whatever they speak to us about it's confidential of course yeah unless there is going to be a risk to themselves or someone else and we have to make that clear to them in the beginning that look whatever you say to us stays in between these four walls unless you say you're going to harm someone you know there's a risk to yourself or someone else or if i feel that telling the staff about this will be beneficial to you I will tell you before right, I speak okay, to them. Okay. So, sorry, 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 I was just going to ask you know, with the, um, for example, you just mentioned that as most, um, you know, mental health professionals always say it does link back to some trauma. How do you put yourself in someone's shoes when you don't think or feel like them in terms of their mental health difficulties? So obviously you've seen, like you mentioned already, you've seen extremities of, of examples. So does that not take a toll on you as well personally? And how do you cope with that? It does. Um, so within the NHS, they have different mechanisms to make sure that their staff are being well looked after. Right, okay. Yeah. So um, certain things that they have, you have um, supervision. Right. So you speak to your manager um, about what's happening because with your manager, you can speak about confidential issues within, yeah, which is happening within the organization, uh, within you know with the people that you're meeting etc you have um supervision outside if you want to go and speak to someone outside of the organization but you have to make sure that obviously it's um you don't give them names and addresses etc yeah clinical supervision you go and speak to someone outside of the box you know who's not part of your team or your department okay and you can go and speak to them about clinical issues or clinical things that you're doing you know um, the NHS mashallah you know they give you time off to go on retreats you know spiritual retreats because they understand that the reason you're you're being employed is for your religiosity I suppose you know for your expertise in your field and they want you to carry on in the NHS as a, a secular organization, you know, you probably see it as well at work that they want you to climb the ladder all the time. Yeah, yeah. yeah they want you to go up. They want you to do extra things yeah, so, so that you get better. So even within your spiritual needs, they want you to do things. And yeah, of course, it does have an effect on you. Mm-hmm. You know, you see things and there's been days I'm driving from, you know, York back to Sunderland because our trust is massive. Mm-hmm. We cover from Sunderland all the way to... Tadcaster now, including, you know, the Vale of York, Yorkshire, wow. that whole area we cover. And me being the chaplain who's a Muslim, <laughs> if there's any Muslim issues, I cover that area. Yeah. So um, as a 
as a Muslim chaplain, as a Muslim uh, who's, who's the chaplain, if there's any issues with about religious issues or, you know, for example, on the CQC, CQC are the people who come and inspect the hospitals, etc. So um, when the CQC came, they came and found that the Qibla direction wasn't there, you know, oh, in all okay. the hospitals. So part of my job was to drive around the whole of the northeast, the north of uh, uh, north of England, putting Qibla stickers on the ceilings. <laughs> yeah. So um, yeah. So um, going back to driving back from York, there's been times that I've had such a you know intense conversation with somebody and they've you know you carry their burden almost yeah yeah, yeah of course because you they, you're the only person that knows yeah mosque i've parked up outside you know you go into auto drive mm. and i drove from york back to sunderland one and a half hours i didn't even realize that you know i'm you know i'm on chester road <laughs> you know, almost home and because your mind is almost trying to take away things and you have to figure out mechanisms for yourself yeah yeah, yeah. you know what works for you you know so have you ever got attached to a patient in that way where you feel sorry for them and it's kind of i think you become, know become a burden on yourself you feel or do you have to turn, turn your heart off you feel sorry for everyone yeah you know as a chaplain i think um someone said to me to be a chaplain you have to have you know um the compassion inside you you know i always say you know chaplain the c in chaplain stands for compassion if you don't have the compassion within you you can't be a chaplain yeah. and chaplaincy is not for everybody because yeah. everyone's got a different mentality and these are values that a person must have and you know as um as we learn w within the nhs when you do all the training you know values can't be taught skills can be taught yeah, yeah, yeah. But values can never be taught. This is something which is instilled within you, and everyone's values will be slightly different. So if you don't have the value of compassion, then you can't be a chaplain, you know. So, but then you need to find mechanisms for yourself. How do you deal with that? What do you do? You know, I go for umrah every year. <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. um, it gives me that sense of you know spiritual boost almost. Um, I, well, I used to. I haven't been for the last four years. Um, but, you know, doing dhikr or reading some Quran or speaking to someone that you trust about it and making sure that they understand what confidentiality you know, yeah, yeah. is. Yeah, of course. But always understanding that you're gonna, you don't want to offload to someone else because, because that thing that you've heard has such a toll on you that if you give it to someone else, then it's going to have a toll on them. Yeah. But yeah. as I always say to my, you know, uh, to my patients, you know, a problem shared is a problem halved, you know, so share it with people. And when our patients, they speak to us and, you know, I find comfort in this, that they feel, you know, you can sense the lightness in them. Yeah. You know, they come into the room, you know, with a burden on their shoulders and they leave the room happy and elated and you can, you can see the, the bounce in their step almost. Oh. Um, just out of interest, going back to... Um... Agents, more like. So, obviously, you're dealing with a lot of patients. But are we? What I want to understand is, are we coming across a lot of Asians with mental health these days? Or I, I think um, Asians have always had mental health issues. <laughs> not all Asians. I'm not saying everyone's mentally unwell. But uh, what I'm saying is, it's 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 getting accepted a lot more. And secondly, it's being understood a lot more. Awareness is yeah. But on that note, can I just um sorry before you answer your question? But on that note, I sometimes think that it's being accepted more, but it's also being exploited a lot more. Mm. Like anything happens now, like you know your child, Dad, I'm depressed. Like do you know what depression means? Yeah, yeah. So I think you know what it is. It's yeah. It's about understanding for parents or you know as well yeah. understanding what mental health issues. If your son comes, your you know I'm I'm depressed. He's not mentally unwell. You need to understand what depression is, first of all. You know, you know, um, medical depression is completely different to being sad because you've lost your game on, <laughs> on your PS5 or something. You know, um, so, but the thing is, children can have mental health issues. Of course. Yeah. And we can't just brush it under the carpet. Yeah, yeah, if yeah, they show yeah. signs that they are unhappy, it's our job as parents to find out why they're unhappy. Yeah, so... 
you know, we don't, yeah. you know, we don't always look at it in the sense that, oh, you know, um, he's, uh, you know, if he says he's, uh, he's depressed because of that, we take him away. No, sometimes they need to understand that they need to grow and they need to become adults stronger, uh, stronger in themselves yeah. by doing those yeah, actions. So, uh, I was, that's why I was asking, um, are you seeing an increase with agents? And if you are, is it? Would you say it's young people, Asians, or elderly Asians, or? I think I think it's still the same. I think I'll be honest with you. There are there's a lot more acceptance, and that's why people come and seek help. Yeah. And there's a lot more understanding of it because there's a lot more information out there compared to what there was before. And our people are, you know, accessing that sort of help and information, so they're becoming aware of a lot more. And because of that, they're seeking help. And, you know, I know um, people who used to hide their elderly away because they used to think that, manager, you know, I almost spoke in Bengali there. No, it's fine. <laughs> people will hear about our elderly father, yeah, or, elderly father or mother or, you know, family member that they're unwell. They've become pagal, pagal as we say. Or, you know, but actually it's about seeking that help. And for you not, you know, for a person who has people in their family, not seeking that help is wrong. You're actually depriving them of their right. Yeah. Understand? It's their haq that you seek that help and give them the mm. best help that you can. Of course, yeah. You know, mm. so um, it's, we are getting more more people in in our services but i it's still a long way you know before. long way to go okay. before it's done our um our trust our organization is doing a lot of work within the you know bame communities we call them hard you know hard to reach communities yeah 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 because they don't seek help they don't seek help they don't accept it or... yeah they don't accept it you know yeah. parents with dementia you know especially on you know the um the early stages they just hide them away. Oh, no, they're just old. Yeah, yeah. Dementia is not a part of old age. Understand? Yeah. A lot of people need to understand that dementia is not a part of old age. If you see your elders started to forget things and you see signs of dementia, you don't just hide them away. No. You seek help. And there is a lot of help out there. You'll be surprised how much help there is out there. There is, yeah. I mean, obviously, you have your um, mental health there. And that's when every workplace just goes crazy. But it's... Yeah. You know, the amount of stuff you see that's available, you think, wow, you know, it's free. Most of it's free help as well. Yeah, it's free help. And you know what it is? That help's always been there. Yeah, yeah. It's actually less help than what it used to be. Oh. But our people don't understand that, you know. Um, and all that help is that it's not that if someone's got mental illness, they're going to lock them up. You know, I think, yeah, I think that's the mentality that Asians have, aren't they? Oh, yeah, that you know, I think we come with that mentality from back home. <laughs> that you know, when someone's mentally unwell, you you know, you throw them you know into a building and you lock the door and you you never let them out. The hospitals can't cope. They don't want you to go hospital. <laughs> you know, we don't have space in the hospital. We will try and keep you out as much as we can. But sometimes, the safest place for that person who is really unwell is in hospital. Yeah. So they've got the 24-hour care that they need. And they don't hurt themselves. They don't, you know, hurt other people. And I've seen families being ripped apart because of mental health. And yeah. just to intervene. And there's been times when you see, you know, the families come in, everyone's everywhere. And you can tell that there's been so much going on within the family just by listening to part of their story. And you show them, all I do is, I suppose, signpost them to services. Look, there's help there. Look, there's help there. If you need this, there's there's that there. You know, if you need, you know, someone to come and do rupia, you know, you don't need to go and pay 500 pounds to someone else. <laughs> you know, I, I'm not saying I'm an expert in rupia. Don't come to me. <laughs> but there are people out there who will exploit these yeah, situations. Course, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, um, and... For me, someone, you know, of course I understand it's a person's time, a person who does the rupiah and who does help that, it's you pay for that time. But to exploit it to such an extent that if you're charging extortionate amounts of money for that, it's wrong. Yeah. But, but people, uh, when they are stuck, when people are desperate, desperate, yeah, any they will do anything. Yeah. You go to a person and you say that, 
you know, um, my child is doing this or this person is, you know, not sleeping properly at night time. Oh, there must be a jinn. If he doesn't, the thing is, you got to understand, if he doesn't say that, you're not going to pay him. <laughs> yeah. But as soon as he says there's, you know, supernatural stuff going on, straight away, you, you, your wallet's open and you're willing to pay as much as you as need. Much, exactly, yeah. You know, so yeah, it's it's more about understanding, isn't it? Um, it is, yeah. But like, yeah, I think you gave the example earlier on where um, people were going to an army for Rukia, but it clearly was a mental health issue. But just to exploit them, they were saying it's not a mental health yeah. issue, and that's I think that's you know unfair because you're not re- you're not really helping any that person out. You're just leading them down to you know a severe case of mental yeah. health. Because all that time they they aren't getting help, the help that they need. Yeah, their mental health is deteriorating day by day. Exactly. Yeah. Um. Just out of point, uh, interest, Mara, a question for you then. So, as someone that's known in the community to work within NHS and as a mental health chaplain, are agents scared of you? That <laughs> 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 like you can assess them and then. Um. I don't know. Um. <laughs> I, I've had people think. You know. Not about me, I hope, <laughs> but um, about mental health that, you know, um, they don't get close to people who they think may have a gin inside them or may have mental health issues because it might, you know, jump to them kind of thing, you know. But um, I don't think that happens. I don't yeah. think mental health is uh, that sort of illness. It doesn't jump from one person <laughs> to another. <laughs> you know, yeah. not contagious. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I suppose people may feel, you know, a bit... Intimidated. Yeah, intimidated that, oh, you know, um, yeah, he works in the mental health care sector. and But then, I'll be honest with you, there are people within the community who will phone me privately. Um, and it's not part of my job because I don't work in Sunderland. <laughs> <laughs> uh, our trust doesn't cover Sunderland. So, alhamdulillah. <laughs> but... Um, Sandbox them, yeah. <laughs> but it, it's, as, you know, my job is not... Just about working yeah. for Tees Escanabria Valley. It's about working for the community, exactly, working for yeah. humanity. But I do get, you know, regular phone calls from local people saying, look, this is happening to me. You know, um, what can I do? What can I do? How can I seek help? Is it gin? Um, what sort of words can I read? Um, who shall I seek help from? How shall I get in touch with, you know, the crisis team? Okay. Um, and certain things like that and or just advice of yeah yeah i'm feeling like this what do i do yeah. you know it's 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 for, not normal for our listeners um i'll give you my abraham's number <laughs> uh, make sure that no one calls me <laughs> um, i think as in a position of authority i think you, you probably take on more than you it's not just the job itself is it it's the person that you are the, the thing you're doing in the community people just tend to see you as that person so if anyone's got a mental health issue, I'm guessing they'll just be like, oh, Point of reference. Brain will, you know, yeah. And, and I think it's, uh, I think most people, um, a lot of people do think, you know, whenever there's a mental health case, oh, let's find out, you know, let's find out. You know, I'm, I'm also a human being as well. <laughs> I, I do get scared of these things. But I think, you know, that understanding of whatever is inside me is, you know, even, you know, if it is a gin. Whatever is inside me is stronger than what is inside you. I always have the understanding. I do my, you know, um, my a'mal, you know, I read my quls and everything like that. Yeah, Ayatul yeah. Kursi, etc. And I have that faith and that under, that belief that, you know, Allah will protect. Yeah, look after me and protect me. And whatever I do, I do for the sake of Allah. And hopefully because of that, then, you know, Allah will look after me. Inshallah, of course. You know, so... Having that conviction is very important. I think without the conviction, if you don't, if you're not sure, uh, you know, and if you get scared too easily, then there is a very chance that your own mental health will have an effect. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, people because of fear, you know, they fall ill. I've seen a lot of people do that. That because they see someone, you know, acting erratically. And they get scared. They think, you know, they think, oh, it's gin and this and that, and they get, they fall ill. So you're talking about um, another chaplain? No, no, not just, chaplain. Just normal people. Okay. Just normal people. Okay, but okay. I think understanding the fact that you know Allah is with me, yeah, and whatever is with me is stronger than whatever is with you. Allah is stronger than the jinn which is with that person. 
that, yeah. you know, Allah protects you. Of course. I think yeah. Malala Abu Shrub said the same thing, didn't he? Have faith in your faith. I think that was the phrase he mentioned. Have faith in your faith. Yeah. Just drawing to a close, a final question from me then um, is what advice would you give for our listeners, anyone that is suffering from any kind of mental health condition, what should they do? If it's early stages or severe stages, if I it's think about themselves or somebody else. Whatever stage they're on, I think what I always say is seek help. There is help out there. Tell someone, even if you know, if you're suffering in silence, tell someone that you trust. Speak to people and seek help. Because if you don't seek help, help won't come to you. Yeah. You know, you can ask Allah and Allah will, you know, Allah will listen to your prayers. But Allah has told us, ask me first and go out and look for the means. Yeah, you have to create, so go, go for yeah. the means. If you're not looking for the means, if you're not going out there looking for help, then how is Allah going to help you? You know, yeah, yeah you, you do your du'as, you do your a'mal, you do everything, but then go and look for help. And I think that is probably the most important thing. If you are suffering from mental health, health, you know, issues, if you're not sure if it's mental health or if it's a gin or if it's whatever it is, if you, you know, and if you've been suffering for a while, seek help. It's never yeah. too late. Yeah. You know, always seek help. Jan, have you got any questions? It's just, it was the same. It was oh. pretty much the same. It's like, why is... Why is the role of spirituality so important in our mental health? I think you covered it in that. I think there's one other thing I will mention because <laughs> before I came on, someone said to me, what is a chaplain? You know, uh, <laughs> so I think it's very important to people, for people, our people to understand because we don't access chaplaincy yeah. as much as we should, you okay. know, in the acute trust. And for the, for the, you know, for the NHS, you know, yeah, they're, they're there. Everyone who works in the NHS, I would say everyone is there because they care. Yeah. But overall, it's a business model. If there's no, if there's no need for a service, they won't give that service. All right. Okay. If there is a need and if they see there's people who come in, they ask for something, even if it's not there, they will make provisions for that service. Right. Within the Northeast, especially acute trusts, they don't have... Um, Muslim chaplains or okay. they do but they're bank chaplains or they are you know um, on call chaplains etc okay. so bank what, chaplain um, means could you just clarify what is acute acute yeah. is general hospitals you know right, the, okay, okay. when you are physically unwell okay. and uh, mental health and learning disabilities is when you're, you're mentally. mentally unwell okay. um, so it's very important for our people for Muslims to access that service I would say even if even if you know they don't have that service, ask for it. Because that hospital, as if they see that there's enough people looking for that service, they will provide that service. Okay. And it's a very, very important service. You know, because everyone's life is busy. You can't expect, you know, the local imam to come in and, you know, yeah, yeah. Um, deal with things because he's got, you know, Rose. namaz and everything yeah. to do, yeah, you know. Yeah. So it's very important. And... Who is a chaplain? A chaplain is a person who has who will listen to you with compassion. Yeah, he has the confidence within his own faith. So he will be, you know, um, grounded within his own faith. And inshallah, he will give you hope. Okay. A person, a chaplain is a person who gives you hope. Um, and a chaplain, the qualities of a chaplain is he will be approachable. Yeah. He's a person, if you've got, you know, when you look at you, if you look like one of the strict teachers, the strict <laughs> Mulanas, <laughs> you probably won't be a very good chaplain. <laughs> yeah. Um, so he needs to be approachable. Yeah. He will give you pastoral care. Pastoral care basically means he will walk with you in your dark times, in, you know, in difficult times. Yeah. He will hold your hand while you're going through all the trauma. He will listen to you because they have to be very good listeners. And listening is a skill that you must learn to be a chaplain. Our, and it's not a very, you know, a lot of people thought, yeah, I can listen. But actually, listening skills is very it's difficult. difficult yeah. it's, it's about not interrupting and listening properly and, you know, attentively. Um, and the person will actively try and help you the most they can because he's there to make sure that you get well and you get better. Okay. And the chaplain is all, always inclusive and he's non-judgmental. 
and all those things that I said is the acronyms of a chaplain. <laughs> okay, so Jazakallah for having me. No, I no, hope exactly. um, everyone learned something and we took something away. Definitely, well, no, no, I appreciate you coming on and uh, for your time as well. So Jazakallah, definitely um, main learning points from me there as well, I'm sure for our speakers as well. Um, so again, Jazakallah for coming on and um, any final comments, Jan? No, yeah, just Jazakallah, yeah, it's really beneficial. I think for everyone from different perspectives as well, yeah. Yeah, I really enjoyed the conversation. Um, inshallah, we'll have you back on soon uh, for different <laughs> topics. <laughs> but um, Jazakallah for our listeners for tuning in as well, um, inshallah. And um, we are now on Apple Instagram, yeah, TikTok. TikTok as well, yeah. yeah. Um, and also we are on Spotify and Apple Podcast. Mm-hmm. So we'll be broadcasting on and uploading our um, talks on there, inshallah. Okay, so now I can.